Welcome to the State Support Team 11 podcast. I'm your host, Eric Neal. Today, we have a very special guest. How do you go from sitting in a special education classroom as a child to speaking on behalf of people with disabilities at the White House, the United Nations, and departments of education across the United States as an adult? How do you transform your learning disability into a lifelong passion for the art of the spoken word? How do you expand your family's impressive civil rights legacy to include tireless advocacy for the rights of all people with disabilities? If you're Ladera Corn, you just do it and you simply never stop. <laughs> Labeled with a learning disability as a child, Lederic defies any and all labels. Today, he's a noted spoken word poet, an advocate for people with disabilities, a founding board member of a national nonprofit, a co-author of the definitive book on hidden disabilities, a bridge builder between learners and leaders everywhere, and as you're about to experience yourself, an ambassador for all, whether you have a disability or not. Thanks for joining us, Lederic. How are you today? Eric, I'm doing amazing. How are you? I'm doing real well. It is a real pleasure to have this time to, to talk with you. Um, you've had an incredible professional journey. You know, you've worked with numerous state and national education organizations. You've served on the board of advocacy groups, um, represented people with disabilities at the United Nations. And you've been asked to even to a gathering of disability and civil rights leaders at the White House, which I'm very jealous of that. Um, you know, what are some of your favorite experiences in your career so far? So you've you've listed off some of the big ones. Um, uh, the the White House uh, invitation during the uh, second term of the Obama administration was was really nice, um, and it was it was it was great to see that you know the the folks at the White House were actively looking for a person of color who had a disability um, to be you know to be represented on that day. Um, I mean, there are things that come to mind. So you mentioned my my role in a uh, in nonprofit organizations. Um, I served on the the board of of Eye to Eye for 15 years. I was its first board chair. I held titles um, uh, associated with uh, chairing their programming and their strategy work. And so to to support that organization over the years was was very rewarding. Um, there is a school in Kenya, a boarding school for students with uh, learning challenges, particularly dyslexia and autism in uh, Kenya, in East Africa, uh, called the Rare Gym Talent School. And uh, it was founded by two amazing sisters. The head of the school is a, a credible advocate, incredible advocate and, and, and educator and a, and a mom of someone with dyslexia. And so I've been supporting and helping them to raise funds uh, the, the school started in a house and is, they're now renting a motel and we're looking to uh, purchase land. And they've actually started building a school that can support 500 students. Um, and there's nothing like that in the region. Um, and then kind of closer to home over the years, I've, I've worked with, um, uh, as you said, different uh, state agencies and departments of education and um, really proud of the work that I've done in the state of Nevada. Uh, they have an incredible leadership team at the state department, the state department of education, and uh, they do a, a youth summit there supporting uh, youth leaders in their transition support. And over the years, the mission of that summit has shifted and changed, um, but it is always at its core empowered young people and their adult allies to make substantial uh, change in their districts. Um, and so, um, We've built up a real capacity of youth leadership uh, within the state. Um, and I guess maybe two years ago, they hired, I believe around 25 young adults with disabilities to uh, start going back into their old high schools uh, or high schools in their region where they live in the state and, and supporting uh, students and learning how to run their own IEP meetings. And so, um, I'm really proud of that. You know, I, I, uh, I, I sort of began this work in supporting uh, youth leadership and development. It's always been an important part. Uh, and I think uh, oftentimes underappreciated uh, resource in the work that we do. Um, and so it's great to see it supported by, you know, by at the state level. And, and uh, you know, it's great to have, you know, me from out in New Jersey to be able to, to support the work of that state. That's really interesting. It sounds like, you know, your work is about advocacy, but that program sounds like you're, you're teaching students how to be advocates for themselves, which is not always how things go in the system. You know, a lot of times you're, re you're really relying on other people and their expertise and all of that, but no one really knows themselves 
as well as the the person. So yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah, I, I just took a call maybe a maybe a, a week or two ago from a um a parent who's also doing amazing advocacy work in New York City, and she just like wanted me to meet her son and talk to her son, and so um, uh, I got to I got to meet him and. Um, I said to him, and this is a message that I, I give to a, a lot of young people with disabilities, um, is that very few of us actually have the luxury of just being students, right? There's like so much change that has to happen within our schools. And uh, unfortunately, in many areas, there's a real deficit uh, as far as professional development for people to really know how to support all students. And so what that requires is for many of us, even while we're students, to actually be teachers um, and you know, in a perfect world, I would love to see it where every kid could just sort of show up in a classroom and have a conversation with the teacher um, and say, hey, you know, in order to be successful in this environment, this is what I'm going to need. And it'd be uh, uh, an open dialogue between between the two people. No, definitely. That that is kind of the goal you want to get to. I, it also sounds like you, you know, you work around disabilities as as the central thing, but you work in so many different areas. Do you think that that really helps keep you kind of keeps the energy up and keeps you motivated and, and excited about doing this work? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, uh, areas as far as like geography, like, you well, I mean, but I'm, I'm looking at you work with state departments, you work with yeah. nonprofit organizations, you know, you, you write books, you do, it's, it's around the same topic, but these are all very different kind of venues where the work's happening. Yeah, it's exciting. And then I'll also tell you that it's, it can also be very frustrating, right? Because, um, you know, I've had the experience of, you know, speaking at a university and then and then being invited to be, you know, to go talk at a high school very nearby that university. And it's like all the challenges this school, this high school is having. There are people doing research in that, you know, that university <laughs> right. that they can support them. Right. Um, and, you know, as well as the um, just the the abundance of, of folks who have solved problems, some that that you know, in some communities, they think of it just being unsolvable in certain certain parts of the country. Um, and I think part of part part of what I try to do, uh, both as an advocate, but also I think as part of my role as a, an activist and certainly also as an artist, is um, is is to try to spread as much awareness, right? And like. Uh, some of the, there's like really awesome research that gets published and stuck in journals that like nobody reads. Right. So yeah. I think it's part of my job to, to, you know, turn it into language that is actionable. Um, and then to also to connect uh, uh, sticky narratives to it, you know, where people can really see, well, oh yeah, this is something that we should actually be doing. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, you know, I do a lot of school improvement work is kind of like the bulk of, of what I do at the state support team. And, uh, you know, my wife is a third grade teacher and you know, I get these great ideas and I get all this stuff going and everything. And she's like, yeah, that's great. But how am I going to fit that in my schedule? Don't, don't, don't to bring me any more initiatives or in these things, but you, you almost, you need to keep that motivation high and keep people engaged and really like reach to their hearts to be able to do this kind of work. And it seems like that you're able, you're able to do that. You're able to get the message out and have those kind of conversations, sometimes difficult conversations and get people to dig in and do it because you can have the best, like you said, the best idea in the world or the best research article or anything, but if people aren't really engaged and, and want to be doing this work, you're not really going to get anywhere. Yeah. And then I, and then I also get really jazzed by connecting with folks like you, right? Like to, you know, Ohio's, Ohio's an amazing state. And, um, you know, the co-author of my book, Margo Izzo works at Ohio state university, um, Aaron Washburn, uh, him and I have worked together for many, many years. And, uh, you know, we, uh, the transition expo that uh, we used to do together, I used to speak up in the, I guess that's the Northwest corner of the state. Um, yeah, so I I um I love I firmly believe in collaboration, right? And right. um, you know, uh I, I think unfortunately we have so much of an image of what it means to be an educator, um, and really even just what it means to work is that people sort of get caught up in this idea that it's something that you have to do on your own. And that can be in any industry, but the truth is is that um 
most work is teamwork and that goes for education as well, you know, um, you know, and supporting folks around inclusion, what you consistently hear is that, you know, inclusion, one of the key components is collaboration, you know, collaboration among the educators. And so, um, uh, and even as an artist, I love to collaborate. I love to be a part of ensembles and that sort of thing. So to to be able to connect with someone like you um, and, you know, and your your colleagues all over the U.S. and all over the world. Um, I mean, that's that's like you said, it's fun. Right. It's like yeah. it's it's what I think makes the work work exciting. Uh, definitely. This is one of my favorite parts of my work is getting to do stuff like this. Right. You got a good gig here, man. Yeah, right. <laughs> So your life hasn't always been this glamorous. We just talked about a lot of these these amazing, fun and wonderful things that you get to do. Can you talk a little bit about your life growing up and and what brought you to where you are today? Yeah, so um, I come to this work as someone who has lived the experience of having a disability and someone who passed through special education. Um, I was uh, I was initially diagnosed and I, I, I'm we know we're I'm recording uh, my side of this from New Jersey and I, I grew up in central New Jersey, still live here. But um, I was initially diagnosed as being uh, neurologically impaired when I was nine years old and uh, passed through um, initially was placed in a self-contained special education classroom. Um, uh, just dealt with a lot of different challenges, you know, uh, you know, a, a relatively restricted environment, segregated environment um, in classrooms that were predominantly full of black and brown boys. And uh, got to the towards the end of my education, my last couple of years of high school and was just terrified by what was going to happen once once I graduated. I didn't know what was possible for me. Um, and so I sank into a really deep and dark depression and um and I was fortunate that I've I've uh, got a very supportive family, um, and I and along the way I've had amazing educators and people in my life that really you know invested a lot in me and gave me a really positive uh, self image. Um, and there was enough of that to sort of counter the narrative around the lack of success for people who pass through special ed and. And I, I, I just sort of did a, dig, a deep dive into redefining myself and came out of, um, of this really dark period, just determined I was going to go to college. And I didn't really know what that meant. I was just kind of like a, like a shot in the dark. Um, I didn't know about, you know, I didn't know I didn't know about disability support programs at higher education. I didn't know about any of that. I was just like, I'm going to a four year college, you know, and, and said that to my IEP team. And I I, I don't remember my father attending any of my IEP meetings, except for my last one. And, uh, and, and he was a champ, you know, he stood, he stood right by my side for that. And, and so the team uh, came up with this idea that I would go to a local county college and then from there go on to wherever I wanted. And um, I was fortunate that both the, the county college I went to, Middlesex County College at the time, was ranked upon around, I think it was within the top five of all associate granting institutions in America. Um, and then they had this magnificent support program for students with disabilities called Project Connections. And I I think because of all the work that I had done personally, I think I was just really primed to accept all the help that I could be given. Um, and then I, and it was like another world. I mean, the, the class structures were so different. Um, it was the first time I started using accommodations. Um, and one of the more powerful things was being able to to have meaningful connections and build friendships that were supportive with other students who had disabilities. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I, I uh, started writing. Um, I had a counselor that encouraged me to, to just write and stop worrying about spelling. And that was something that my fear of misspelling words had prevented me from really diving into a, a talent that I think had always been there ever since I was a little kid. And so I started writing my first poems and, um, emceeing open mics and, and, and traveling throughout the Northeast, doing poetry. And, um, and then I also realized that uh, I was really good at math, you know, uh, not basic calculations, but with a calculator, you know, calculus becomes fun. So um, 
took, I had to do a year of remedial classes in college to, to sort of catch up academically to actually learn how to write and how to do math. Um, but then I, I transferred after five years with a 3.75 GPA, went on to New Jersey City University, uh, was a part of another support program for students with disabilities. I did my last two years of my degree in two years. I, I recall doing um, taking 26 credits my last summer. Because wow. um, I was so determined just to, to get the hell out of, out of college. <laughs> and um, my last semester before before I graduated, um, Bill Freeman, Bill Freeman at the New Jersey Department of Education saw me speaking at a, on a panel uh, at a conference that was hosted uh, at New Jersey City University. And um, Bill invited me to speak at a conference in Virginia. And I did well there. And then his colleague, uh, Bob Hall. And I give Bill and Bob a lot of credit for, for sort of giving me a launching pad and, and really allowing me a platform. And that really began my career. Um, uh, uh, Bob asked me to start emceeing and speaking and doing uh, work at events designed to support young people with disabilities here in the state. And um, I worked here in New Jersey just for I guess maybe the first two years out of college um, while simultaneously um, being involved in real estate um, and then uh, started forming relationships with different nonprofit organizations and different agencies and began doing this work all over the country. Yeah, I I had a similar experience with going the community college route. Uh, I was a late starter on school or higher education. I I started um, community college when I was 26. I had to do the remedial classes. Yeah, yeah. I I can identify with a lot of that. And, uh, you know, it makes me think about uh, different things that they've tried to do to to help students with disabilities, but all students really. And it makes me think of kind of your, your video that you made normal isn't real. Yeah. You know, that, that, that reminded me of this Ted talk that I saw once called the myth of average by uh, Todd Rose. So uh, he also a student with disabilities um, went on to do really, really great things in his career. And uh, he, he talked about the challenges that the, the U.S. Navy had in designing a fighter jet cockpit for the average size pilot. Yeah. And you know, they, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars, all of this research, all these things to find out that there's no such thing as an average size pilot. Yeah. And, and so they, they end up going through and redesigning to where they make everything in, in the cockpit adjustable because every single person is a little bit different. Yeah. And, and has uh, different needs. And and so I, I think that, you know, it, it's not just a thing of let's help people with disabilities. Like how, how can we we do that important work and then use what we learn from that to help all all people that, that can use supports in different ways? Because everyone learns in different ways. Everyone uh, expresses how they learn in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. So just just to be fair, the uh, normal isn't real. I'm featured in the film, but it's Chris Cormier is the, the filmmaker. And, right. and um and I felt very honored to be a part of that project. Um, and I would encourage the listeners to to check out Norm, normal isn't real. Uh, it's, you know, the film, you can find it online um, and, and there uh, Chris sets up community viewings. Um, yeah, and so I I I firmly believe in this idea that um, there actually um, there is norm no normal or there is no average, um, and the closest we can get to the average or or something that we can think of as being normal is variation. You know, it's the idea that we're all. Um, you know, we're all different and that variety and diversity is is actually the norm. Um, and, and, and very much as it's uh, said in, in uh, Rose's TED talk, you know, like um, we unfortunately, we build uh, many of our systems to, to an average. Um, and what ends up happening is that it's very little uh, service to, to anyone. Right. The, the, the thing that I think is important, and this is I think this is the where the, the connection to um, civil rights and education really connect is that our, our schools are, yes, built to an average, but also normalized to a certain student. Right. And that 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 student was determined a long time ago. And it's you know, it's generally like a, a middle class white person 
person, right? right? Um, our Male. schools were not initially designed <laughs> for people of color. They were not initially designed right. for English language learners. It is important that we all realize that there was a time in American history in certain states where it was illegal for people with disabilities, particularly more profound disabilities, to be educated with everybody else, right? There were a lot of people who fought and sacrificed to make our schools uh, uh, integrated on multiple levels. And so I think, you know, what we what we're where we're at now is us trying to shoehorn and supplement, um, you know, supports for 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 the others that are now in our schools. Right. Uh, the world I want to see is a world where, um, you know, and, and I hope not to offend anybody, but that there is no special education, you know, that um, we give uh, all of our teachers the tools that they need to be able to support all students. And again, that's too much to ask of perhaps of any one person, but through collaboration, through people working together, supporting each other, and particularly in, in spaces where folks are interested in learning um, and, you know, and, and like, constantly t willing to like jump in and roll up their sleeves and tackle problems, right? Like, and, and when leadership is willing to provide them with that professional development, um, I think it allows us to redefine, to stretch and expand um, uh, the, the population that our schools are able to support. Um, and that's, that's, that requires a lot of vision, right? A lot of vision, a lot of commitment, a lot of imagination within um, not only our educational leaders, but also within the communities that, um, that our schools are in. So. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And it's still to this day, a huge issue that we're grappling with, you know, um, from a lot of administrators standpoints, the the solution to the issue is remove the the student from the the core instruction yeah. to give them this different thing that, that supposedly will meet their needs better. But what you've done is you've separated them physically, but also emotionally from from that connection with their classmates and and what again, going back to this normal, like what, whatever the normal thing that everyone else is getting and, and separated them out. But what you've done now is completely taken away that thing that everyone else has gotten, yeah, <laughs> that there's absolutely. no way to put that back. And you've just now said, okay, well now we, we've given you this intervention, but you've got none of the foundational stuff. And it, it is much more difficult logistically to say, you know, how are we going? You're right. You can't, you can't ask the teacher to teach the core instruction at the same time, be doing these different, you know, interventions or supports and do this. But how, how do we take those resources from all of these separate settings and redirect them into a classroom to support and co-plan and co-teach with what that teacher's doing mm -hmm. so that we're, everyone's getting the same thing, but with, with the equitable supports and things that they need to be able to, you know, be successful in that. Yeah. You know, and, and and one of the things that I hear consistently over the people who've taken up this challenge and are like, you know, are doing it well. Um, yeah, it's like one of the things that I think a lot of people don't think about is like peer support is real important, too. You know, what I mean, like building a culture of inclusion within the entire school and having every single kid, every kid on board that this is a place where we support and we love everybody. And um you know, the it's not uncommon, you know, for for kids to su su provide supports for their peers. You know, like there's pretty substantial data out there around like it's not necessarily beneficial to have a, 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 an adult hanging over every kid. It's certainly not beneficial to have people totally segregated and, se and sent out. Um, you know, like when I think back to my own experience passing through education, you know, even now as an adult, a lot of the emotional work that I still have to do comes from. I think a lot of damage that was done because I was separated from everybody else, you know, and and what that conveyed to me as a child, as far as what my value was, what my potential contribution to this to this world was. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't want to see that happen to to one more child, you know, and so it's part of the reason why I do this work. No, that, it makes so much sense. And, um, you know, last last fall, uh, my my twins, I have a boy and girl twins, four years old now, but at the time, three ready for preschool. Yeah. Um, you know, COVID, like everyone else, it got in the way of of that. But they, I signed them up in the district to be uh, peer mentors. Yeah, that's great. For the special needs preschool program. 
but I, having this conversation, I'm kind of conflicted in the moment while we're having this conversation because I like the idea of of that, of making sure that they're getting, you know, um, typical peer interactions and things. But but why why not figure out a way to just have just the preschool and and, you know, pro provide a student buddy or someone within that setting? Because, again, it's a it's a separate thing. And, you know, with the best intentions, I'm I'm signing up for that. But I'm also perpetuating that in a, in a way I, it's. I, yeah, I mean, you know, like, I don't know. You know, I remember being in middle school and not being able to open my locker. Right. And I don't know what that is. Right. Is that like, uh, you know, maybe some of my issues around just like my digit span and being able to rem remember numbers. I, you know, I don't know. But, you know, I didn't need a para to open that locker. And, to, and I mean, like the, the person next to me is the one that showed me how to open that locker. Yeah. Right. Um, and I remember working in the state of Wisconsin and um, meeting an, an incredible advocate who was a wheelchair user and him um, uh, really advocating for um, county-based transportation supports to be open to taking him to more than just school, work, and home. And part of his argument was like, you know, I like to watch football games. And so I want to be able to go to the bar and sit and watch a game, right? And what I tried to, con to convey to people was think about the way that all of us got our jobs, our first jobs, our employment. It's not always because of like what you know, but it's who you know, right? It's the connections that we make. And, and that is sort of the richness of life beyond just it being able to help facilitate vocational outcomes and what have you, but it's the connections that we build with people. And I, I know, I know, you know, and I've been I've been able to benefit from being able to connect with a very uh, diverse group of people all over the world. Um, my life is better for it. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, one of the things that we can all use is early exposure to being support, being support and supporting different kinds of people. Right. right. Um and, and then again, it's, I mean, it's like school leaders know this, right? Like one of the complaints is we don't have enough money. We don't have enough time. I mean, like having, having your school population. And again, it's like, it's everybody, like the lunch ladies, the bus drivers, all the parents, you know, crossing guards, everybody's got to be online with, um, we, we need to be a place where we support each other. Um, and so, yeah, I, I really lean into it. Like I, it's, it's the kind of world I want to see. Definitely. So your book that you co-authored with uh, Margot Vreeberg is uh, called uh, Empowering Students with Hidden Disabilities, A Path to Pride and Success. Um, that that pride part, you know, is really, really important. You know, promoting disability pride is one of those themes. Why is it critical to develop the pride in addition to things like pro-disability policy and evidence-based practices and things like that? Well, I think I think that we unfortunately have a, a, a dominant culture and then, you know, you can even drill it down to communities and families where we don't talk enough openly about disability. I would say that many, many people with disabilities are walking around with a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment. I can also say uh, and I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that it's it's part of the added challenge with being a person who has a hidden disability is like I could pass for like everybody else. If I wanted to, I could try to just sort of disappear um, and do things on my own. And this is part of what I think we see in higher education when you get all these students with hidden disabilities who, you know, been on IEPs, they leave, they go into higher ed, and then they just don't want to disclose. They don't want to access disability supports. Many of them fail. Um, and then, you know, it's only after being on academic suspension um, or, or, you know, being in a, a, you know, a horrible place as far as their mental health that they begin wanting to reach out and ask for help. If they ask for help off, they don't just drop out. Um, and so, um, the, the piece about pride, I think, is important as a support for transition, um, because uh, the reality is, is that there are a lot of supports out there for young people with disabilities, young adults with disabilities once they enter into to the adult world. But one of the things that has to happen is that you have to be willing to raise your hand to, to 
check the box in some way, be, be, have enough pride in, in being able to identify as a person who needs support. Um, and so that, I think that's part of the reason why that pride is important. Um, also, I, I think it, as part of uh, helping someone to be a quality self-advocate, they need to be connected to um, the history, the lineage, of people with disabilities. Um, I definitely think of people with disabilities as being an identity group, um, that you know, disability culture is a very real thing. And, um, you know, and un- again, unfortunately, we oftentimes think of people with disabilities as being folks who are operating with just deficits instead of our heroes and our sheroes and people who have consistently made the world a better place. So um, that's that's a that's a big part of of you know why we we push the idea that supporting um, our young people and developing a sense of disability pride is so important. No, I, I agree. It's you know it's a really it's a mindset issue as much as it is a uh, again you know thing, a focus on practices or things like that. It, it's just as important, and they go hand in hand if you want to want to be able to to be successful and help them be successful. And you're speaking of success, you know, your book does serve as a guide for disability advocates, allies, and parents. Um, You know, what what are some of the other topics that you cover in the book? Uh, Well, uh, the uh, major focus in the book is uh, around transition, right? So um, uh, being able to support our young people uh, as they move into higher education, uh, transition to the workforce, independent living. Uh, the last chapter has a real emphasis on the importance of supporting our young people in building quality, quality relationships. And it's sort of a, a nod to um, social emotional learning um, and just how critical that is to be able to just connect with each other, each other in, a, in a positive and a healthy way. Um, uh, so, so transition is a big piece of it. Um, and then I, I'm, I'm very proud of what Margo and I did because we also, I was, I was, I was talking to a, um, a mentoring group last week and uh, in, in doing a Q and a, uh, a young woman pulled up the book. She said, it looks very textbookish. And I was like, yes, it, it is very <laughs> textbookish. Did she mean that as a compliment? <laughs> right. I think so. I think so. Um, but I said, but if you open that book up, what, one of the things you'll see, it's about 50% research and 50% um you know, uh, supports and strategies and then, uh, uh, you know, like is all of those sort of things. And then the other, the other half of the book is, is a lot of narrative. You know, it's a lot of uh, Margo and I pulling from our own stories, pulling from the stories of the folks we interviewed for the book. Um, uh, and again, I think, you know, I know it's the way that people learn, right? We learn through storytelling. Um, you know, I'm a poet. It's, I think it's part of what I, the value that I bring to this work is, is an, an artist's uh, uh, sensitivity um, and and using the arts as a way of being able to convey information. So um, that's that's I, you know again it's something that I'm proud of. We've we've heard that you know that the there are people who just sort of will will look at it and just use it as a resource and just sort of skim through and you know look at all the URLs and the studies and that sort of stuff. And then there are other people who you know are just interested in in those narratives and being able to hear information directly from people who've, who've lived this experience. Definitely. You know, I myself am a, a parent of a student with a disability. Uh, my son has ADHD and I often feel like my experiences with his school and district are compliance focused. And, you know, they, they're, they're really interested in just making sure no one gets in trouble. That everyone, especially working with, you know, two parents who are in education, uh, they're a little bit more attentive sometimes than maybe they would be for for other people that, that don't know the rules as well and things like that. But, uh, you know, at the same time, part of my work is in coaching schools and districts how to engage with families. And, you know, what, what do you feel we can do to help create supportive and authentic family engagements with parents just in general, but specifically with parents of students with disabilities. Well, this is some, something that I actually uh, learned from working with uh, one of your colleagues in one of the the, the other regions in the state. Um, and, and maybe when I mention this, it'll it'll stand out to you. But I remember uh, interacting with someone who, like, uh, in that in their their region, um, they were working as almost like a parent ambassador. So they were a parent who had passed through 
the the you know the school system and supported their their child in special ed and now they were a part of almost like a core a group of folks who were um you know when someone was identified as having a disability when someone moved into the um the the region and uh their child was on an iep you know one of the first people they got to talk to was a fellow parent right who was like here's here's how things, you know, kind of go here, here are your rights, here are the things that you should know about. And it was, I love it because it's sort of a proactive, uh, proactive approach to supporting families and not waiting for there to be an issue. And then someone from the school, you know, has to show up, but um, it, it not only being someone who's connected to like, you know, you know, like the state or the district, right. um, But it also being someone who, they can relate to, you know, so, so much. I, I, I uh, promote this all the time is that we, we oftentimes have to think about the messenger, um, not just the message. Right. And so um, I think that's, that's one of the things that's, that's really important. Um, you know, amplifying parent voices. Um, uh, th- there are districts that I've seen who are utilizing video very effectively now. And by that, what I mean is um we should all be like trying to capture like the story of that, that the students, you know, who have disabilities, who access services, who use supports, who have gone on to do great things, capturing that, capturing the stories of our families and their positive interactions with the school. Um, and then being able to use that as, uh, you know, playing that for families, creating, you know, spaces where um, they can learn, learn from each other, but capturing those authentic authentic stories. Um, I mean, the, yeah, those are, those are just, just, just some, some examples. And I, I also, I also think that, that um, providing, uh, we can think of them as like professional development opportunities uh, for families are, are also really important. Um, you know, our, we want to invest in our families. We want them to be empowered. Um, and I think, you know, a knowledge of your rights and everything else is something that should come from the school. And I think that showing families that degree of respect um, is, is important. Um, and then I think it's also, it's also really key that we, that we acknowledge the diversity of our communities. Um, you know, I, I will oftentimes, uh, all over the country be called in to, to, to speak at a district and everyone's really proud to sort of talk about, um, the percentage of the students who are on free and reduced lunch and the percentage of the students who are from different ethnic groups. And then in my, you know, I'll always ask, it's like, okay, well, but how is your, your, your teacher population change right. to sort of keep up to, with those differences? And what you will commonly find is that, you know, as, as the demographics of the pop of the, the family population has shifted, there's still oftentimes, you know, it's middle-class white folks who are, who are, uh, who are running the schools and have not again, given an opportunity to get that cultural awareness so they can be really effective with being able to support all students. So um, I think, you know, actively recruiting, right, from from the communities that you look to serve, right, as far as filling different positions, um, building that diversified team, I think that's 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 also a really key piece to it. Oh, definitely. It, it kind of takes me into the next question I was going to ask you. you know, in your book, you talk about careers and self-determined adult lives, for students with disabilities. Um, you know, I just completed this diversity, equity, inclusion in the workplace course. Um, and uh, they recommended that organizations actively market job openings to workers with disabilities. You know, something as simple as saying that people with disabilities are encouraged to apply right. in the posting rather than things like you'll see uh, must be able to lift 40 pounds. Right. I've never lifted more than a pound doing my job (laughs) the entire time I've done my job. There's nothing about lifting 40 pounds required to do what I do. But if but it's probably in the job posting and and that would exclude a a lot of people, you know. So, you know, things like that, I think about just um, being that meticulous in, in all of your work and and signaling out to the community that we we want to actually be inclusive and diverse and equitable. And it's reflected in our, our hiring practices and how we right. communicate and all of those things, I, I think can be really helpful. You know, what are what are some other things organizations can do to be more inclusive? Well, you're 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 picking up on something that I think is really key is that all of us, and I think the the past 12 months, um, our nation's 
really the world's response to um, the police violence, you know, some of like public lynchings that we've seen um, on the news. Um, I think it has forced all of us to really just sort of question um, uh, what we're doing to either uh, support or, uh, a more just world or what we're doing to reinforce old standards. And so um, I think all organizations that in a way sort of have a, a momentum and we can get very caught up in just sort of doing the same things the way that we've always done instead of pausing and asking ourselves questions like what are the policies and practices that we have put in place that we've inherited oftentimes that are exclusionary? Right. And that piece around lifting. Yeah. Like, you know, if yeah, if I had to pick up something that was 40 pounds, I'd I'd, I'd struggle with it as well. Right. Um, and 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 again, like for most of us and most of our job places, it's about collaboration. Right. I'm going to call. Right. Hey, Eric, you know, we, we need to do this together. Right. Um, so, yeah, look, looking at looking at um, at that language. Right. Examining that, examining um the sort of soft policies that are in place for like who gets hired, who gets promoted. Um, you know, those things are really important. Um, you know, during the past 12 months, I've received phone calls from like some of the major disability um, organizations from all over the country asking for advice, asking for presentations, oftentimes, you know, wanting to have that same conversation about like disproportionality that we would have had prior to uh, the murder of George Floyd. And what I have said consistently to everyone is like what this point in, in history, I think asked of all of us is in part for us not to be, yes, it's important to be critical of the outside world, but also just to look internally, right? So look at your boards, right? Um, you know, yes, for race and also for disability. Like I, we need more people with disabilities on our school boards to be able to speak to, to, to their experience and inform policy. Um, we do not have enough school administrators who are also people with disabilities. And I think as part of um, us embracing the idea of diversity, uh, disability should be a part of that. And then the other thing that I think is very challenging is that the dominant cultural narrative around disability is still oftentimes a very white story, right? Um, you know, it's been great over the past couple of decades to be able to turn on my television and see such representation of like major characters in different series um, who are, you know, people with different kinds of disabilities, but oftentimes those are folks who are also, you know, uh, not people of color. So um, realizing that identity is very complicated and that we need to be looking at, um, you know, and, and being able to, to I, I think the teams that win are the teams that are diverse, right? And so, um, you know, being able, particularly when it comes to our leadership, um, you know, having a strong commitment to being as diverse as possible um, and, and realizing that it takes like real effort, you know, the systems we've inherited make it um, effortless to sort of continue the status quo. And so it means that we can't necessarily rely upon our own social networks, right? Because generally, you know, the history of segregation means like I live in a black community. It was designed through redlining to be a black community. Now it's gone pretty consistently. It's making this shift from black to brown, but there aren't too many white folks here, right? Um, if I was just looking for my immediate social network for hiring practices, which is what a lot of us do, um, I would have a hard time. Um, so it, it takes us, you know, kind of getting out of our comfort zone, um, building alliances, um, making recognitions that, you know, like we haven't done things well in the past, but we want to want to do things different um, and and then being brave being really yeah. brave. No, I, I'm with you 100%. You hitting on that disproportionality, it, it's a real uh, thing that's on my heart because, you know, they're, they're difficult conversations. And because of that, a lot of times people try and avoid them. They'll like, they'll separate things out and they'll be like, well, let's just talk about the disability part. Or, you know, if you dig into the data deep enough, yeah. The, the special education identification of African-American students with disabilities is is higher, but also different for the type of disability, all sorts of things or behavior. You know, you'll you'll get lumped in with an emotional disturbance diagnosis or something, which may be uh, behaviors that are the result of an actual different learning disability or something. And and so I think it, for organizations, it's about 
it's about educating your your staff. It's about creating, like you said, a an actually more diverse group of people in the organization, but but then creating the organization to not um, you know uh, the the word I like the most about this in this day and age is performative. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's there's almost like two kinds of work going on right now. There's hey, look at us, we're doing diversity. Yeah. In, in equity and inclusion in a performative way to check off the box that we're doing it. And then there's, there's people that are getting down and doing the hard, difficult, uh, you know, scary work sometimes of, of really having these hard conversations and facing up to some of these things. So I, th- I think if you can, you know, start by getting the, the, you know, a diverse group of people in the room that can help you to, to set up the system because a system by itself necessarily isn't going to fix it you know it's yeah, just yeah. made of people <laughs> yeah and i and i've you know i've <laughs> i remember getting this call not too long ago from a group that was like you know we're, we're building a, a diversity equity and inclusion committee to help us our organization become more diverse and i was like okay well who's on the committee yeah <laughs> right um because uh you know like you need to be able to fill that 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 committee with people who actually have power and capital within your organization um, so that they can actually exercise some sort of change. And then here's a here's another one that a lot of people don't think about. What power are you going to give that committee? Right. If that committee comes out and says, now nah, we've we've got, you know, we can point to places where we're actually having like very racist um, yeah. you know, policies and practices. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people just take those reports and basically just stick them in a drawer, you know, and said, well, we're just going to continue doing things as, as, as usual. Um, and so, you know, like really being clear about, um, uh, what the other side of this work may look like and, and, um, you know, and, and how we're all going to need to be able to transform. Because if we don't do things differently, we're going to keep getting what we have now. And that's not working, working for anybody. I think that we, you know, to take it back to just a sort of broader conversation about inclusion, and particularly as it, as it pertains to, to disability, um, uh, this, uh, inclusion supports all of us, right? It doesn't just help the kids with disabilities, um, but it helps students who don't have disabilities, right? Like, um, and, and there's data around that as far as academic performance, but I think also just as far as being a, a human being. Yeah. Um, and and the true that's true for all the dimensions of uh, of diversity, all the ways in which we measure diversity, um, the, the, the more that we can connect people um, and uh, and honor and respect them, the better off we all are. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that because, um, you know, this course I took was through university and um, sponsored by a, a global engineering firm and all this. So it was really focused on the business case. Which yep. is which is good and important, but at first, like we're all human beings, let's let's treat each other the right way, and it's also good for business and good for academics and and those things. So, yeah. yeah and I, I just yesterday got done talking. Uh, a foundation brought me in to work with a group uh, that included higher education and people within a certain uh, region in the Northeast um, that were representatives from financial students, institutions and other other businesses who were interested in having, again, this the the element of disability as part of their diversity work. Um, and it and it was, you know, very, very similar conversations. Um, what I found interesting is that I think the people they logged on thinking I was going to talk about like how to provide support for their customers and clients who are folks with disabilities. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want you to look yeah, because uh, in our schools, as well as in our businesses, right? Like it's employees, it's the leadership, yeah. right? Like, and particularly when it comes to making cultural shift, the more that you can embed and have an inclusive environment and an open and supportive environment um, as part of your team, the better you're going to be able to support all those people that your organization or your company is supposed to be serving. And that's true for our, for our schools as well. You know, again, that board representation, the, the representation of people with disabilities within the classroom, um, you know, and, and administration is 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 part of how we um, uh, build an organization's capacity to serve a diverse group of people. No, you're right. I mean, imagine, you know, you're a student with a disability. It's great that people are talking about all of the things that you can do, 
But what's more inspiring than seeing another person with a disability in a leadership position as a teacher, as a principal, you working that that's not telling you that you can do it. That's showing, showing you showing that you, you can do it. And yeah. that's and that, that's really powerful. And that's the poetry. That's I mean, that's that's a that's a uh, truth in poetry. Right. Po- poetry isn't saying it's showing. Right? right. And I think it's it's part of the way in which we have uh poetic organizations, right? Is when we can, when it's not someone up there lecturing you, right? But they're actually showing you, hey, here is what is possible, right? And again, I think, you know, like representation matters, right? And so um, remembering that and making that a core of of the work that we do. And and, and really, I mean that, like, that is the work, right? Right. You know, that is the work. It's part of the way in which we push ourselves. Definitely. So I'm really excited. Um, SST 11, we're we're hosting a a virtual family engagement event with you in June. Can you give us just a a little preview of what that is and what people can expect? Uh, Well, you know, I'm going to um, I'm going to just be giving advice. Right. It's uh, advice to to the families who um, who tune in. Um, and are part of the event. I, I definitely want to talk a bit more about my my own story. I'll be sharing some poetry um, and just giving the things from both my professional and personal experience that I think is going to empower those families uh, to empower the young people in their lives. Um, again, I, I appreciate you guys even asking me to be on this podcast and, and asking me to come in um, because I think um, we have better schools. We have better communities when we, when we invest in our families. So I just want to be a part of helping that, helping that happen. Absolutely. So if people would like to know more about you and the work that you do, where should they go? Uh, it sounds funny. Lederic.com. You can just go to <laughs> Lederic.com um, as my webpage. And I have a, a newsletter, um, but I'm also on uh, active on social media. So I have a YouTube channel. If you put in Lederic Horn on YouTube, it'll come up um, uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. All right, Lederic, I really appreciate uh, having you today and you taking the time out to you know, share your story with us and preview your upcoming event. Um, you, you mentioned that you'd like to leave us with a poem. Why don't you go ahead and do that? Sure. So this is um, this is uh, 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 to give the audience a glimpse. Uh, I plan to do at least two poems as uh, as part of our, our session for families. So this is a poem. It's relatively short uh, and it's a poem that I wrote to celebrate the uh, Individuals with Disability Education Act. So it's called An American Idea. It's an American idea. Today's child will be tomorrow's citizen. Education shapes our expression of liberty and separate. Well, that has never been equal. We are the students of a new day. Brave scholars who claim desk and classroom, book and school until the self-evident truths expressed through our victories gave this nation's first declaration renewed life. Each mind is beautiful. Strength has many forms and we are all able. Thank you so much, Lederic. I, I really appreciate it. It's been great having you. Thank you, Eric. All right. So that wraps up our discussion today. You know, once again, I really would like to thank our special guest, Lederic Horn. Um, If you'd like to find out more about Lederic's upcoming events and our professional development opportunities that we offer here, you can check out our website. We're at sst11.org, our uh, SST11 Facebook page, or on Twitter at sstregion11. If you'd like to reach me, uh, send me an email. I'm at eric.neal at esco.org. Until next time, thanks again to Lederic. I'm Eric Neal. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much.